are headed over to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church can be dismissed at this time. Those remaining, Psalm 64. Psalm 64, beginning in verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers. From the tumult of those who do iniquity. Who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow. To shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and they do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say... Who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, We are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. So they will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. All who see them will shake their head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God. They will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and will take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of grace that it is. Thank you for its truth and how it points us to you, to the glory of your son, the majesty of your spirit. Father, conform our hearts and our minds today to your truth. May our lives be shifted and adjusted placed aright by the good, gracious things that we learn from your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we see Jesus, our deliverance from secret or hidden enemies. And so what I want you to see in the first two verses of Psalm 64 is David's request. So verses 1 and 2, David lays a request out to God. And he asks God to do three things for him. First, He asks God to hear him. He wants God to hear him. Um, If you've ever been involved in any sort of conflict resolution or happen to to yourself be a person who um, is engaged in that particular relational conflict, um, one of the old old adages is, uh, is, is there's a difference between hearing and listening. Yeah, okay. All the husbands in the room nodded immediately, and then the wives sitting next to them kind of snickered. So, okay, so y'all have had this conversation, and apparently you've heard it. All right, very good. Um, And so, in in our world, what we emphasize is the listening. I need you to listen to me. I want you to recognize that this particular Hebrew word for hearing is more akin to our English concept of listening. I don't want you to just hear the words I'm saying. I don't just hear the noise. I just don't want you to to hear the surface language and have a baseline understanding of the words that are coming out of my mouth. What David is actually asking God to do, he's asking God to hear deeply and specifically and particularly his relational concerns. If we were going to carry it into our modern English vernacular in a way that our culture uses the language, 
David would be saying, God, I need you to listen to me. I don't need you to just hear that I'm crying out to you. I don't need you to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need for you to listen to me. This is a relational word. This is a word that's filled with longing. Here, listen to my voice, O God, in my complaint. Now, of course, the word complaint carries a whole bunch of weird connotations in our culture. This particular word could also mean the thing that has me distressed or this concern that I have. It it It's not the same sort of notion in our modern culture of the negative idea of somebody who's just, you know, popping off and complaining and frustrated and sideways. Like, that's not what David is is talking about here. And so he wants God to relationally and longingly listen deeply to the concern that he has. So that's the first request. And friends, I just want to pause and tell you that's a great request to ask of God. Because our God is a God who hears us. He's not deaf like false gods who have no capacity for hearing. He's not an idol made of wood and stone that has no relational abilities, that has no real connection with us. Rather... We are made in God's image. And if you are in Christ, he is remaking you properly back into that image by conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. And when you cry out to God from a heart of concern, he does, in fact, hear you. He does not turn a deaf ear to his covenant people. And so if you want your prayer answered, ask this. Because I, I talk to people all the time, like, I, I wish God would answer my prayers. Well, maybe you're asking God to do stuff that's contrary to his will. That's why he's not answering you. I'll tell you something that's not contrary to the will of God, hearing his people. You want a yes from God? Ask this thing that David just asked. God, hear me. You know what God will say? Absolutely, I will. I've promised to do this. Second thing that David requests is for God to preserve him. God, preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Now, I want you to notice what David did not request here. Read it carefully. David did not ask God to just preserve his life generically. David knew, hear me this morning, this is a tough one. David knew and understood that it might in fact be God's secret will for him to die. He didn't ask God to keep him alive. That's not what he asked. What did he ask? God, preserve my life from what? From death? No. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Friends, here's the thing. In our lives, particularly our spiritual lives, we will face enemies. And God has made no promise to any of us that when we face our enemies, that will not be the end of our lives. 
when the scripture says that those who pursue righteousness will in fact receive persecution, that they'll treat the servant the way they treated the master, there's no follow-up promise that God's going to see you through and that you won't die. Trust me, you can dig around in there all you want to. You're not going to find it in the Bible. It's not there. So what is it that David's asking? He's asking the same thing that the disciples prayed at their prayer meeting when they were released from prison. He's praying to be courageous in the face of the enemy. When I face the enemy, I want you to preserve my life from what? From death? No, from dread, from fear. When I face the enemy, God, I don't want to be afraid. That's what he's praying for. He's praying that God will take fear from him. He's praying that God will give courage to him. Yes, there's a underneath that there's a longing for safety underneath that there's a longing for protection there's plenty of other places where david prays for god to be his refuge and his place of safety and all of those kinds of things it's not inappropriate necessarily to pray for those things but in this particular moment david is not praying necessarily that god would keep him alive and safe god is praying that god would keep him unafraid Give me the boldness that I need to face my enemy without fear. And unfortunately, most of us, when we pray prayers like this, we pray for God to keep us safe so that we don't have to face the enemy. Rather than embracing the fact that it might be God's revealed will, that we go toe-to-toe with the enemy and that we do so with courageousness. So David is praying here actually for courage. And then third, hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers. Notice David's not praying here to be hidden from the enemy. He has done that before. There are times where David has prayed that. But here, that is not what he's praying. David is praying to be hidden from the secret counsel of the enemies. In other words, and we're about to see this when we look at the enemies, because there's a whole section about these enemies that David is concerned about. And what we're going to see about these enemies is that they are the ones who shoot from concealment, that it's, it's their mouth, it's their works, it's their conniving, it's their scheming that's bringing about all of the problems. They are working in the shadows and in the dark, and the things that they're doing in the shadows and the dark are wreaking havoc in the world of the light. And so David is asking God to hide him, not particularly from the enemy himself, but from the schemes that the enemy is trying to hatch out in the world. Father, I know... This, these enemies, Lord in heaven, I know that these enemies are scheming and they're plotting and they're trying to manipulate and they're working their secret plans and, and we can't see it and we don't know where it's coming from. We don't know when it's going to strike. God, I want you to hide me, protect me, conceal me from their hidden work. In other words, I don't want them to be successful. I'm praying for the failure of my enemy. That they'll plan, they'll plot, and they'll scheme, and it will come to nothing. Because you will thwart their plans. 
These are great requests from David. And I just want to pause here. It's not fully related to the whole of the sermon, but it's kind of a free little tidbit. If you want to learn how to pray better, because you know, our request today is no different from the request the disciples made of Jesus. Teach us how to pray. How can I learn to pray better? I would say pray biblically. How did they pray? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Guess what? This is a perfect prayer because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit for David to write down to give to us as a gracious gift from God to us. This is how he prayed. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if you're struggling with how to pray, pray like this. Say, but Philip, if I pray like that, I might actually have to face the enemy. Exactly. The reason why we struggle to pray isn't because we don't know how to pray. It's because we do know how to pray and we don't like praying like that because it makes us do things that we might not want to do. If we're just going to be real honest. That's our real struggle. It's not that we don't know. Oh, we know. We know exactly how we're supposed to pray. Don't want to pray like that because if I pray like that, God's going to exact, act exactly the way God acts and then I'm going to have to act the way I'm supposed to act and I don't want to act like that. So here's the skin. Here's the skinny. This is the way it is. Look at this. Pray like this. This is how you want to pray. And so then David moves, still in verse 1, because some of it's woven through there, but down through verse 6, he begins talking about the character of the enemy. And he gives the designation to the enemy. And and you see this in verses 1 and 2 that we've already looked at. He gives a designation to the enemy. First, he calls it the enemy. Listen, that's a word we don't use a lot in our culture anymore, enemy. Because it's a very strong word. And and about the only time anybody really uses that word anymore is if there's an actual open conflict between our nation and some other nation. And so then you look at that nation and you say, yeah, our soldiers over there, they're fighting the enemy because there's an active open conflict that's going on. That's about the only time that people meaningfully use that word in our culture much anymore. But this wasn't a foreign power. These were people within the nation, within the society, people that were, should have been part of the covenant, people that probably should have been supportive of David as king, people that should have been friendly to his cause because he was the anointed one of God, and they are the ones he's calling his enemy. So it's a, it's a tough word. And then he progresses and calls them in verse 2, evildoers. I, I kind of I wish that we would just for a short while in churches move back to some of this more aggressive biblical language to talk about stuff, you know? You know, when somebody is engaging in some catastrophic level of volitional sin... You know, we, we, we saw, well, even using the word sin feels soft. You know, it's like, well, they, they're, they're committing some sin. They're making some mistakes. They're making some poor life choices. Yeah, everybody's chuckling because this is what, wouldn't it be awesome to come sit in the meeting with the people who are trying to call you out on that stuff in your life and be like, hey, you're an evildoer. 
There's a couple of people who laughed in a different way. I heard it. I heard the slightly different laugh because they've been in those meetings where me or one of the elders have actually done that. Like, dude, you're a wretch, you know. And so it does happen at Sylvania every once in a while. We just don't broadcast it that it happens. So, And I pray that none of you find out. I hope that never happens to you. I hope you never sit across from any of the leadership at Sylvania Church and they go, you're an evildoer. Like, I hope that that never happens to you. Like, I hope that you walk with the Lord and that's just not your reality. But wouldn't that be great if churches all across the world would just kind of talk a little more plainly about how people are when they're living in their sin? David doesn't pull any punches with these people. He said, hide me from the secret counsel of evil doers. Friends, you cannot be someone that's designated an evil doer and simultaneously be designated as someone who loves the Lord. Like David is being very intentional with the aggression of his language. This isn't somebody that it's like, well, maybe, maybe they struggle with some stuff, but then they're pretty good in some other things. No, evildoer. The stuff you do is evil. Well, what stuff? The stuff. That's it. When I think of you, I think of nothing redeeming. I only think of a person who does evil. That's what David is saying about them. And then he doubles down on that still here in verse two and calls them workers of iniquity. Those who do iniquity. They're not just generic sinners like all of us are. They are actively pursuing the work of sin. This is very aggressive. And then David starts fleshing out how this enemy, how these evildoers, how these workers of iniquity are actually actually expressing this sinfulness in the society. And he moves to something that we've seen a lot in the Psalms. And if you were to study it closely, you would see it a lot throughout all of the scripture. And it is the misuse of speech. Notice what he says. What have they done? Verse three, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment, to go sniper style at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and they are not afraid. This is all in the context of what they do with their mouths. It's a misuse of speech. Now, in our culture and in our society, we probably, of all of the peoples of all of the world who have had nation-state existence, have probably been the worst at the misuse of speech in the history of mankind. So, Philip, that's a big, bold statement. Yeah. But all you have to do is just kind of go back and look at some of the public expressions of speech, whether written or actually spoken, that have existed in the world, that have been filled with vile and guile and abuse and just just pure disregard for image-bearing and other people. I mean, all you got to do is get on Facebook, Twitter, other social media accounts that use words. All you have to do is see when they throw a camera in somebody's face at a political rally on either side, doesn't matter. And how they talk to each other and how they talk about each other. Even people who claim to be Christians who should know better to not 
views the language this way. Why is it that the scripture goes so out of its way to caution us on how we use our speech? Here's why. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. There was darkness and the spirit hovered over the surface of the deep. And then God said, let there be light. And you fast forward through that creation story and you get to the pinnacle of creation. And he says, and let us make man in our image, male and female. Let us make them in our image and in our likeness. Let us make them. And then you roll to the next creation story in chapter two. And what is the mandate that God gives to the man to go and do? Go and name all the things. I've been naming stuff into existence. Now I've got this thing that I've made that's in my image that's supposed to be my representative in the world. Hmm, I wonder what they should do. How about you use your voice and your mouth and your expression of speech and you go name other stuff. We participate in the divine reality when we talk. That's why your speech matters. That's why it's not okay the way that we normally talk to each other. That's why the scripture has literally over a thousand references to the use of the human tongue and how we speak and engage with one another. It's the reason why in the New Testament, James himself makes the declaration about how the tongue is like this thing that can never be tamed. It's like a small little flame that sets everything on fire. It's why the great poet of old, the theatrical play wrote, the pen is mightier than the sword. Because all it takes is somebody to sign a declaration of war and millions of lives will be lost. And then for the same people to sit down and write a declaration of peace and millions of lives will be saved. There is power a reflection of divine power in human speech. And so David points out that these enemies, these evildoers, these workers of iniquity, well, what is it that they're doing that's so bad? They are creating havoc in their society and in their culture behind the scenes with the things that they're saying to other people. And it could be as simple as, you know, David, David's not really supposed to be the king. That's supposed to be Saul. You knew that, right? I mean, why do we want to follow this upstart? I mean, I know Saul's kind of messed up, but I mean, come on, really? The prophet, before he died, went out in the field and picked the runt of the litter of Jesse's family to be our king. Who's going to believe that nonsense? Why would we follow this guy running around the cave who likes to hang out with the Philistines? He can't be the guy. And you know what you have? Civil war in the nation of Israel. That's what you have. All because of somebody's errant speech. It's like those old prayer meetings at church. I'm going to go to Medlin instead of preaching for a second. It's like those old prayer meetings in church that were really gossip sessions baptized as spiritual concern for other people. 
Oh, we need to pray for Miss So-and-so. Well, why do we need to pray? Have you not heard what's going on with Miss So-and-so? Let me tell y'all what's going on with Miss So-and-so. Only because I'm worried about her. Not so y'all can find out all this mess that I just told you about what's going on with Miss So-and-so's life. And now everybody in the church has this bad view of Miss So-and-so because I offered up a prayer concern for Miss So-and-so. Some of y'all are nodding. Y'all remember those? Yeah. The misuse of speech. When something doesn't go your way and you don't like it and you explode on social media, you get angry. I've done it before. I have people who love me enough who've called me and say, hey, Philip, man, really, dude, you probably should delete that. And thank God for the work of the Spirit in my life because previously before the Spirit really like started doing a good work in my life and conforming to the image of the Lord, I would have not only not deleted it, I would have informed the person who called me to delete it all the reasons why they, you know, it would have been a bad conversation. It wouldn't have gone well. But thank God for people in your life who say, look, you shouldn't have said that to that person. You shouldn't have talked to that person that way. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have done that. You, you might have been right in the underside of your general thoughts, but you're totally wrong in the way you delivered it. Praise God for people. If you don't have people like that in your life, you need people like that in your life. Because it is from the mouth. Jesus said this, by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Why? Because your words are a reflection of what truly is going on in your heart. Say, Philip, you're, you're taking this way too far. I actually had a conversation, total providence of God, that literally before the service started this morning, between Sunday school and service, I had a conversation with somebody about this. Romans chapter 10. But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he goes on to talk about the mouth and confession and justification and the heart and belief in salvation. Here's the thing. Hypocrisy is when the mouth expresses something that the heart doesn't really believe. And there's lots of people in the world who confess Christ but don't believe Christ and they're false professors. There's no one in the world who can truly believe Christ in his heart and not actually confess him with their mouth. The overflow of the heart is what reaches the mouth. And here, David is declaring the great evil of these people is their misuse of speech. And that brings about these secret attacks on the blameless. And they seek out to bring injustice against other people. And they look to do... Listen, they look to do all of this without raising one weapon in the air. Notice David not one time. He uses metaphors of swords. He uses metaphors of arrows. He uses metaphors of shooting from concealment. But he is expressing that this is what they've done with their tongue, with their mouth, with their speech. That's where it comes. And notice God's judgment on those who live this way. It says here, beginning in verse 7, that God will respond in like kind. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded. And then it makes a weird shift in, in English. So they, 
will make him stumble. Their own tongue is against them. The they there is a reference back to these plots made by those who are scheming. Their own plots are going to be the one that comes against them. God will respond to them in kind, but he won't do it secretly. He'll do it openly and publicly. The enemy will stumble over their own words. The enemy will stumble over their own plotting. Their own plans and their own words will trap them. There's a reason why, and it's been this way in all cultures, all over the place when people have had power. We just happen to have a a system name for it in our culture. There's a reason why witness protection exists. You've got some people out there who've been plotting and scheming and they've done some criminal stuff and they've done some bad things. And then you find a person who finally has the courage and the bravery to stand up to the machine and say, hey, I know some stuff and I'm willing to tell everybody what I know. What's the first thing they do? We're going to change your name. We're going to move you to Omaha. Why? Because people who have been making their living from scheming and plotting and being deceptive and being wretched and being evil with their speech, and that speech leads to other things that cause oppression and violence and injustice and criminality, what's going to happen to the person who's finally going to stand up and tell the truth? Now, that probably they're not going to be around for long. That's how that works. Guess what? That's not new to America. It's always worked that way. Everywhere. Everywhere. And so... God swiftly turns their plans on them. Their own words are what causes them to be judged. And notice how the righteous respond to this. Notice how the righteous respond to this. Look at this. Look at this. Then all men will fear. And what's really interesting is that in the NASB, and some of the other translations may do it the other way, but in the NASB, it keeps all of these verbs in the present tense when actually in Hebrew they're in the past tense. And then all men feared, really, is what it should say. And they declared, not will declare, the work of God. And they considered actively in in a real way, not what's going to happen, what he has done. When you see the downfall of those who've been wicked in secret, that secret sin brought to public light. It causes people to hesitate modeling their lives after that. It causes people to hesitate modeling their lives after that. When you live in a culture and society where the wicked seem to excel where the wicked seem to thrive, where those who scheme and plot and connive and use secret speech to to alter society to their advantage, it motivates others to want to live that way. But when someone is exposed for their wickedness and their plan explodes in their face and they have to face the judgment of their wicked ways, it creates hesitancy for everyone else around them. It's one of the reasons why the New Testament offers up the beautiful thing called church discipline. It's not to run down the person who's in their sin and won't repent. It's a public warning to everybody else. This is not the way of Christ and this is not how a Christian lives. Be warned by this person's life. 
that there are consequences for living in your sin. And it's not a harsh thing. It's actually a good thing. And so when God brings his judgment down on these people and they're exposed for what they are, it says that all men fear. They declare the works of God. They consider the things that God has done. And then notice what happens. Then the righteous man will be glad. <clears throat> and I want, I want just to, under, as we get ready to close, I want us to understand this morning. The righteous man is not glad in the judgment of the wicked per se. There is some room for that because it's glorying in a characteristic of God that should be glorying in, that he's a righteous judge. And there are some places in the scripture that allow that, that show that. But here in this context and in most contexts, when, when it talks about the downfall of the wicked and the righteous being glad... It's not so much a gladness that the wicked has been punished as it is a gladness that God is righteous and he doesn't let sin slide. When the wicked are punished and their sin is exposed and judgment is placed on them, it tells us something wonderful about the character of God. That our God is a righteous God. That our God is a holy God. That our God is an all-seeing, all-knowing God. That our God will not let the guilty go unpunished. Our God is just. That's what's causing these righteous ones to be glad. We serve a just God. A righteous God. God. And so this gladness that they have then motivates them to take refuge in God, to find safety and security in him. Those who are upright in heart glory in this greatness of God. You say, well, what does this have to do with Jesus? How is he our deliverer from these secret enemies? What is it that that he actually has to play in this? Listen, when it comes to salvation in Christ and being conformed to the image of Jesus and finding deliverance from sin in the gospel. One of the profound realities of being in Christ, taking refuge in Christ, glorying in Christ, considering the ways and works of God in Christ, all the things that are happening at the end of the psalm. When it comes to that and we and we place it in the reality of the New Testament, New Covenantal reality of the gospel. What benefit do we receive from being in Christ? Well, one of the great benefits that we receive is that God has promised we will be made into his image and his likeness. We will be made like Christ. And what is it that Christ does with his mouth, with his speech? He's not conniving. He's not manipulative. He's not scheming. In fact, he gives a mandate, a kingdom ethic to everyone who is following him. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That thing which we would not control on our own, that most dangerous weapon that all of us have, our divine reflection of speech is redeemed by Jesus Christ so that our mouths 
reflect the gospel when we open them. And friends, I want to go ahead and tell you that that truth that our mouths should reflect the gospel when we open them is why David at the beginning of the psalm was praying for courage. Because I'll go ahead and tell you, I'll go, from, from my own personal perspective, I'll go ahead and tell you, way easier to stand toe-to-toe physically with an enemy knowing that it's about to be a physical confrontation. Way easier to do that than it is to control your mouth and not run down that person that you feel like may have wronged you without dealing with whatever the relational issue is for how they wronged you. It's way easier to just get the swinging than it is to put a muzzle on your mouth and let your speech so glorify God that it reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. The actual physical confrontation, don't need much bravery for that. To actually have your speech not be the speech of the enemy of God, to not be the small fire that creates a great fire in the forest, to not be the small rudder that turns the great ship, to not be the thing that no man can tame, to allow it to come under the control of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that requires a great deal of courage. God, I need this courage from you. I need this bravery from you. I need my life to be preserved from the dread of the enemy because, friend, more times than not, you know who the secret enemy is? It's not out there. It's in here. And Jesus Christ is our deliverer from the secret enemy. Those shadowy places in us that we would ignore that we would avoid, or even worse, that we would cultivate and then justify. Well, I know maybe I shouldn't have said that, but I'm just going to tell you, you need to confess of whatever else is coming after the end of that sentence. Yeah, yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. doesn't matter. Close with this. What did the New Testament say about when Jesus Christ was taken to be crucified? It's like a lamb, a sheep, before his shearers who did not cry out and remain silent. Jesus himself said, I could call legions of angels. I could stop this right now with just a spoken word. I'm not going to misuse my speech like that because this is the will of God. And so, friend, this morning, Jesus is the deliverer from the secret enemy. Yeah, from those who whisper things that are terrible that might malign your character. But even more from the secret enemy that you keep tucked away on the inside that wants to in turn malign someone else's character with your speech. A lot of times when we think about David and the hostility that he faced in his life, we think about Saul, we think about swords, we think about spears, we think about war. And we forget that some of the greatest problems that David ever faced in his life that he needed the greatest deliverance from were the things that people were saying. Because men in their wickedness would not control their tongues.
and that we have a great mandate from Jesus Christ to be mindful of our speech. May he give us bravery to do so. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for challenging texts like this one that call all of us into account to be cautious with our words, whether they're typed, whether they're written, whether they're spoken. Father, you take the divine use of the mouth seriously. It is one of the things that causes us to bear your image, our capacity for profound and deep speech. And our mouths can be used to declare the glory and splendor of Jesus in the gospel, thus opening up avenues for you to save lives. Or, Father, our mouths can be used to run down and to abuse and to assault and to malign the character of those people that we should be loving, thus destroying lives. Father, forgive us when we yield to the secret enemy when we misuse our mouth, when we sharpen our tongues like a sword, when we set our tongue out like an arrow, when we shoot from concealment against those who do not see us. Father, forgive us. Father, help us to be mindful of how impactful our words are in this world. Let them be like the speech of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite the men who are going to help us with the Lord's table to come at this time.